morning, everyone. And as you can see, Habakkuk chapter 3, 1 to 19, titled Habakkuk's Prayer. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet. Lord, I have heard your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Tenman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. His glory covered the heavens, and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed in his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. I saw the tents of Kushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot. With his own spear you pierced his head, when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, gloating as though about to devour the wretched who were in hiding. You trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. I heard and my heart pounded. My lips quivered at the sound. Decay crept into my bones and my legs trembled. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, And there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food. Though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Saviour. The Sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights. A few years ago, some friends of... um Kathy's and mine went through an incredibly hard time. They were having their fourth baby when they were told that something had gone wrong and the doctor said that when she was born she wasn't going to live for very long. And a few months later the baby was born and what the doctors said turned out to be right. The baby lived for a few hours and then she died. It was such an awful time for our friends. Um, Our friend, she said to us, You can't really understand what it's like without going through it yourself. You know, people send cards when it happens. Some people even remember to send cards on the anniversary. But then most people forget and move on, whereas they can't forget and they feel like they they can't really move on. It was such a a terrible and a hard time for our, our friend that she began to question God's goodness. How could she ever believe again that God had her interests at heart? How could she 
rests in God's goodness when it felt like he'd let her down so badly. God, the author of life, the one who sustains all things, could have intervened at any point, but he didn't. Why? Between us here today, of course, we could tell thousands and thousands of these kind of awful stories that just make you cry out to God, why God? What are you doing? Real stories of of heartache and pain that could easily make us doubt the goodness of God. Some of those stories would be about other people, but some of them would be our own stories too, about our own pain. And if you've been fortunate enough so far in this life not to know that pain, you can't escape it forever. All of us, at many points in our lives, will have reasons to ask God, why? Over the last couple of weeks, we've been reading Habakkuk's book and we've seen that he's someone who questions God. In the first week, he asked God why he tolerates wrongdoing. Habakkuk looks around the city and he sees injustice, he sees violence and evil amongst God's people. And so he cries out to God and he says, why? Why don't you do something about it? How can you put up with it, God? And we saw that God said to him that he's not going to put up with it for much longer. He's raising up the Babylons to invade his people's land. And so then last week we saw that this just raises more questions for Habakkuk. As Habakkuk pictures the Babylonians invading his country and killing and destroying and doing all sorts of evil things, he asks God how on earth he can stand to use such an evil people to judge his own people when God himself is so pure. And then we saw that God said he's not going to tolerate the Babylonians forever either. While he stands behind them, he also stands against them and he stands ready to judge them too for their evil which he hates. And how do you reckon Habakkuk feels at this point? Is it just me or does it feel like there are still questions that haven't been answered? I mean, God said he's going to judge Babylon's evil. He said he hates their evil, yet he's still going to use them to judge his people. I can't fully understand that. And Habakkuk is the same. Habakkuk has asked his questions, God has answered him, but there's still a lot he doesn't understand because God doesn't tell him everything and because even if God did fully explain it, Habakkuk is never going to understand it. He's not God. And today we see his next and his final response to what God said. And what we see from his response is that what he does when he can't fully understand God's actions is he recalls what God has done in the past. When Habakkuk questions what God is doing, he remembers what God has done. Look at verse 1 with me. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet on Shigenoth. This is a musical term because Habakkuk frames his response in the form of a, of a song. And the song begins in verse 2. And he says, Lord, I have heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. Repeat them in our day. 
In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Habakkuk casts his mind back to how God has acted in the past. And we see the famous and awesome things that God's done in verse 3. We read, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran. All the places that are mentioned in this song are places around Mount Sinai. His glory covered the heavens and his praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. What's he talking about here? What famous, awesome deeds is he remembering here? Well, he's describing when God saved his people out of Egypt, out of slavery, where they were oppressed and miserable with no future and no hope. And with poetic language, Habakkuk pictures God coming down to Egypt like a warrior. He's remembering how God did battle with Egypt to rescue his people. So in verse 5, he says, plague went before him, pestilence followed his steps. Do you remember the, the 10 plagues that God sent against Egypt because Pharaoh, in his arrogance, refused to let God's people go? So he turned the Nile river to blood, he sent frogs, gnats, flies, locusts, he sent disease and boils and then darkness until finally he defeats Pharaoh when every oldest son in Egypt dies and finally Pharaoh lets God's people go. Habakkuk goes on in his description of God as an awesome warrior in verse 6. He stood and shook the earth He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed, but he marches on forever. I saw the tents of Cushan in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. These are more surrounding nations near Sinai who would have heard of, of what God was doing in Egypt. And then Habakkuk remembers the key moment in Israel's history. Verse 8. Were you angry with the rivers, Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode your horses and your chariots to victory? Do you remember what Habakkuk is talking about here? It's what we saw in the kid's spot. Pharaoh, in his arrogance, changes his mind yet again and pursues the people, thinking that he's got them trapped between the ocean and his army and he bears down on them with his horses and chariots. God holds Pharaoh up with the fire and then what did he do? He tears the ocean apart so that his people could walk through unharmed. But Pharaoh still in his insane rage against God drives his men onwards into the sea after them and God's horses and chariots The wind and the waves come crashing down on Pharaoh's army in victory. Habakkuk goes on to describe with more poetic language what it would have been like to have been there in verse 9. You uncovered your bow, you called for many arrows, you split the earth with rivers, the mountains saw you and writhed, torrents of water swept by, the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. 
when I asked the kids if they could imagine being there, could you imagine being there yourself? What it would have been like? Imagine just how terrifying it would have been. Lightning and and rain pouring down as the waters parted. As you walk through the ocean with a wall of water on one side and a wall of water on the other. Wind howling past you. So dark that you can barely see. As the flashes of, of lightning are the only thing lighting up your path. Thunder crashing around you. And as you stand there in the midst of the ocean. With Pharaoh behind you and the promised land before you. What picture of God is being burnt onto your brain? This God is terrifying in his anger. This God is spectacular in his salvation. And unbelievably, this God is on their side. This picture of God was to define Israel forever. Habakkuk casts his mind back to Israel's beginning, to the event which made them, where the most powerful nation in the world at the time was humiliated as God stooped down and rescued his people, freeing them from slavery and suffering. But how does this help Habakkuk? So many hundreds of years later, Habakkuk writes this, how does it help him? How does remembering God's past actions help him with his unanswered questions now? Well, it help him, helps him because to remember what God was like is to know what he is like and it's to know what he will be like again. See, whereas we might remember someone and what they were like and yet when we meet them again, they might change and be different. That's not the case with God. God doesn't change. What God was like is what God is like and is what he will be like again. Habakkuk has seen that God is going to judge the evil in his people with the evil Babylonians. He's left reeling, unable to understand how this fits with God seeking the good of his people. But he remembers the past actions of God that show beyond a trace of doubt that God is good and God is for his people. And as he looks to the past, he can have confidence in God for the future because God will always be true to who he is. So he remembers and he clings to what he knows of God's character that when God judges, he also saves those who are his people. Habakkuk remembers that with his wrath, God always remembers mercy. Look again at verse 2. He asked God to act again how he has acted in the past. And he says in Habakkuk 3 verse 2, In wrath, remember mercy. In some ways, wrath or anger is the unnatural action of God. Now his anger is completely appropriate and it's right, but it doesn't come naturally to him. See, while we can truly say God is is love, we can't rightly say God is anger. God, as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, has known love for all eternity. 
The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Spirit and so on. But anger is not something that's intrinsic to him like that. Instead, anger is something that's introduced as God responds to evil. All parents, actually, think that anger is something that's not natural to them. You know, before you have kids and you daydream about what kind of parent you'll be, do you know the kind of daydreams I mean? It's usually as you're watching other people struggle with their kids in shopping centres and that sort of thing. In those daydreams, no one's ever thinking, when I'm a parent, I'm going to discipline a lot, I'm going to be sending my kids to their room, going to be yelling at them. No, no one thinks that. Everyone thinks they're going to be the most wonderful, tireless, patient, reasonable parents that ever existed. And then we have children and we discover the truth. Anger is forced upon us because all kids are deeply affected by sin. And we also discover anger comes naturally to us, unlike God, because we are as as deeply affected by sin as our kids. And so for the first few years of having kids, when they're having a tantrum in the shopping centre, you have to resist that urge to run up to glassy-eyed, naive couples and say, this will be you too one day. I know there's some of you out there. But unlike us, anger is not natural to God. Anger is his necessary but unnatural response to our evil. It is the only right way that he can answer our corruption of his good purposes. You know, the way we twist the good things that he's made into evil things. That demands that he be furious with us. If you don't like an angry God, well, neither does he. But we're the reason. We're to blame. We bear the responsibility for his anger. If we don't like an angry God, the solution is simple. All we need to do is remove all evil from our lives. Get rid of selfishness, greed, apathy, pride, lust, but we don't. And so the true reason we don't like an angry God comes out. Unlike God, we quite like evil. We're more than happy to tolerate it. What's worse than anger is actually indifference. To see evil and and to do nothing or to feel nothing against evil is itself evil. But God will never be like that. God will never be indifferent to evil because that would be to contradict his character and God will never contradict his character. It's actually love that drives God's anger. His love for his good creation. His love for his people and above all the Father's love for the Son and for the Spirit drives him to be angry when we destroy their work and vice versa. But God's response to evil we see in Habakkuk is not only anger, God's response to evil is also mercy. God takes pity, He has compassion. God intervenes and saves. 
In fact, wherever you find God's anger, you will always also find his mercy. Habakkuk knows this, and so he calls on God to show his mercy in his anger yet again, just like he did when he had mercy on his people and saved them from Egypt. Look at verse 12. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. There's God's unnatural anger. Verse 13. You came out to deliver your people to save your anointed one. Here is his unending love. While God was angry with Egypt, he showed mercy to his people. And Habakkuk calls on God to do it again. So in verse 16, he says, Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. God has said to Habakkuk that despite the Babylonian invasion, the righteous will live by their faithfulness. Remember that from last week? The ones who keep their faith in God will be saved. And it's as Habakkuk looks back and he remembers the character of God that he's able to continue on, faithful to God, even when he doesn't understand. As he remembers God's past actions, he's able to keep trusting in God and he's even able to rejoice in God as his saviour. Now, notice that when Habakkuk questions God, he doesn't recall the works of God in his his own day-to-day life, does he? Did you notice that? He doesn't say, yesterday, God, I was sick and you healed me. Or last week, I was depressed and you lifted me up. Or last year, I was looking for work and you found it for me. Now, all of those things, if they had have happened, they, they would have been from God. But Habakkuk's faith is not pinned to his circumstances. In fact, he says the complete opposite. Look at verse 17. Though the fig tree does not bud and there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls. Now, if my lemon tree doesn't flower and produce fruit, which it doesn't at home, in the end, all that does is it makes me a bit annoyed and I threaten to chop it down, but I'm too lazy to ever get there and do it. But that's not what's happening here. This is so much bigger for Habakkuk here. What he's saying is so much bigger. He's saying, though there's famine, and so there's nothing to eat, no work, no economy, no future, though the Babylonians have destroyed it all, yet, verse 18, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God, my Saviour. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to tread on the heights. Habakkuk's faith is not linked to his circumstances. It's linked to God's character, shown in his great acts of salvation in the past. Now, on the one hand, this is a remarkable display of faith, isn't it? God's going to judge his people by sending a nation to destroy them, who'll do all sorts of terrible things. And yet Habakkuk is somehow able to say that he'll rejoice in God. He calls God his saviour and his strength. He has faith that God will bring him through such an awful time and somehow bring God uh, good, somehow 
God will bring good to his people, though Habakkuk can't understand. It's remarkable faith. But on the other hand, Habakkuk has such a clear vision of God's past salvation, as if he himself were there, of God tearing apart the waters, of God doing battle with Egypt to rescue his people. He has such a clear picture of the character of God that it's little wonder that Habakkuk trusts God. His extraordinary faith simply reflects the fact that his God is extraordinary. Habakkuk's God is our God. God doesn't change. And so Habakkuk's faith can be our faith too. There are so many things in this life that can cause us to doubt God's goodness. If you haven't experienced them yet, you will. But I know for a fact that so many of you have already experienced them. In fact, so many of you are experiencing them right now. And are right now asking, why God? And in my own experience, these questions, they either drive you from God or they drive you closer to him. I talked about my friends at the beginning who lost a baby and how particularly one of them was having trouble feeling the goodness of God. Well, for a whole year she felt like this until eventually she talked to her minister about it and she said to him, I'm questioning God's goodness. How can I possibly know anymore that God has my best interests at heart? If he could have intervened at any moment, and he didn't. And the minister said, you can know God's goodness. We can know God's goodness as we look back. What he was telling her to do was exactly what Habakkuk is doing here. He was telling her that to know God's goodness, no matter what our circumstances may be, we need only remember the great actions of God for us in the past. And we can be left without a shadow of doubt that He is good. We don't look back at walls of water with the wind howling past, where God, like a warrior, smashed the arrogance and the strength of the Egyptians to rescue a small and weak people for Himself. We look back and we see God himself become small and weak to rescue a small and weak people. We look back and we see God hanging on a cross in Jesus with nothing keeping him there but his love for us. We can look back and see God's wrath and mercy in judgment and salvation And we can see it's so much clearer than Habakkuk ever could and so much more terrifying than Habakkuk could ever picture. God does not stand distant and cold from our pain and detached. God comes in swinging for us, terrifyingly angry at the evil in this world that troubles us. Angry at the evil that we ourselves have introduced between him and ourselves. And we look back and we see God take that evil into himself. Not just experiencing it, but owning it 
owning the consequences of it. As he lashes out in judgment and is himself lashed in judgment. In those times of questioning, which will come if they're not here right now? Look back. Remember, we can know God's goodness because God gets his hands dirty and has entered our mess. And he enters it in order to bring it to an end. God's going to act again. He's going to bring about one day what he's won on the cross in Jesus. A day is coming when the pain and the struggle of this world will cease forever. This is the character of our God. And like my friend, we can know God's goodness no matter what else hits us in this life when we look back at the cross. Her own minister who said this wasn't just giving detached, impersonal kind of advice to her. I know him too because he used to be my minister. He was speaking from his own personal experience. Before he was a minister, he lost his wife and his baby in a car accident with a truck. And they were on their way back from a Christian camp where they were leaders. And he himself questioned God's goodness. And as he did that, he found what all believers find when they go looking. The cross speaks louder than any pain, any suffering, any awful experience we may go through. The cross speaks louder that God is good and he's on our side. Like Habakkuk, we have our own struggles with the evil that we encounter in this world. So let me ask you, What happens next when you lose your job and you can't find work? When you get diagnosed with cancer? When your child walks away from Jesus? What happens next when your husband leaves you? Or when your child dies? We don't know why God allows us to face what we face, but we know Him. We know the God who feels our pain, the God who holds back nothing to one day bring it to an end. We know Jesus who rescues us from our slavery to death and judgment and evil in his own death. We know more than enough to know that God is good and he's on our side. Are you ready with Habakkuk to trust him even in the hard times? no matter what. Let's pray. Our Father, there is so much we don't know. Lord, you know, and we know you. Help us to see that that's enough. Lord, we thank you so much for the testimony of the cross that Jesus lifted up for all the world to see is the supreme display of your goodness, your kindness, that you are our saviour and you are on our side. Lord, when we doubt your goodness, when we can't understand, help us to see with clarity like Habakkuk saw with clarity, your goodness in your past actions displayed again. Lord, when we don't feel it, help us to know it, to bring our 
objections and complaints to you and to wait for our feelings to catch up again, Lord. Lord, help us to walk with you as our Father, with our faith, to be those who are righteous because we have our faith in you. Not in ourselves, not in our circumstances, but in your character, your goodness, your love. Lord, make us a church that holds unswavingly to you with remarkable faith because you are a remarkable God. Amen.